Peschen Bedvar Malchus, a Sicha from this week's Parsha, Parsha's Bamidbar. So the Parsha begins, and Hashem tells Mesha to take a census. Now, the idea of a census is not unique to the Jewish people. Every country takes a census. There was one time a census taker who was uh, walking, walking around the neighborhood with his clipboard, and he's going from house to house, and he walks over to this house, and he sees this fellow sitting on the porch, one of those guys who just, you know, sits on the porch. And uh, as the census, census taker's walking up to the house, the, the guy sitting on the porch says, uh, whatever you're selling, we don't want any. The census taker says, no, 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 you got me wrong. I'm, I'm not a salesman. I'm a census taker. So the guy sitting on the porch says, what's a census taker? So he, the census taker says, well, every 10 years, the, the government of the United States sends people like me around to find out how many people live in this country. The guy sitting on the porch says, oh, you got the wrong guy. I have no idea. So every, every country takes a census. That's not unique to the Jewish people. What was unique to the Jewish census, Parshas Bamidbar, is who took the census. Being a census taker in and of itself is not a high-skilled job. You know, it's something that uh, basic literacy is required, and that, that's just about it. It's not a specialized field, census taker. And yet, in, uh, in the Jewish census, the census taker is Meshur Rabbeinu himself. His assistant, Hashem gave him an assistant. Atov Aaron. You have your brother Aaron the Kohen Gadol, second uh, in command. And along with you, if you need a staff to help you do, uh, to take the, the, this count of the people, the heads of each tribe. So what's the point here? The way that Rebbe explains it, and in classic fashion, the way that Rebbe looks at uh, everything in Torah from the lens of Avas Yisrael, the point is like this. Um, a Jewish census is unique because Jews are unique. Counting how many people there are is not uniquely Jewish. But appointing the head of the entire nation and his uh, second-in-command and the heads of each tribe, which basically you got the A-list of the state dinner there, and you send them around to go taking the census, that's a testimony to the fact that the Jewish people are that special, that they are worthy of being counted only by the leaders of the nation. And the bottom line is like this, and this is the connection to our topic tonight. You know, we, there's an expression, do you have any idea who you're talking to? Do you have any idea who you're talking to? And uh, the point of Meish Rabbeinu being the census taker of the Jews is, you know what, I might not know anything specific about this Jew. I might not know about his qualities. I might not know his story. One thing I know is Meish Rabbeinu himself is his census taker. So, transitioning into tonight's topic, which is giving support, help, um, empathy, understanding, and lastly, but very rarely, if, if ever, advice. We'll get into that a little bit later, Mertz Hashem, why advice is rarely, if ever, 
but giving all these you know, the support and the empathy and, the, and clarity is good, perspective is good. Um, when it comes to the matter of shalom bias, marriage, I think the first klal godel is, do you have any idea who you're talking to? And I mean that on a few different levels. First of all, like a wake-up call. Um, we should approach hearing somebody's story with trepidation, with awe, with dread. Do you have any idea who you're talking to? Do you have any idea what you are approaching? This is not to be taken lightly. We're talking about a Jewish family. We're talking about neshamas. We're talking about generations, eternity. Not to be taken lightly. So that's the first thing. Do you have any idea who you're talking to? Should strike us with a little dread. Which is, I knew there was a reason why I was sitting down. I told you. Second of all, do you have any idea who you're talking to? Um, in more of a, I mean that now in more of like a regular way. Like, do you know this person? Do you have any um, familiarity with their story? Do you know their personality? Um, it's very, very difficult to give one-size-fits-all advice. There's a letter in the Igris about Shalom Bias, and one of the things that Ebba says there is that there are no klolim. You can't give klolim. You cannot give general principles in how to handle a Shalom Bias issue because, in the Rebbe's words, each person is different, every situation is different. So the Rebbe says clearly about Shalom Bayes, the first rule is there are no rules. And it's not just Shalom Bayes, by the way. I mean, this is the Rebbe's approach about advice in general, is don't answer, don't answer the question, answer the questioner. Um, do you know who you're talking to? And, and, if, and if you don't, if you're not sure who this person is or you're having trouble connecting on a, on a human level, it's okay to say, you know what? I don't feel like I understand you well enough to, to comment. That's, that's completely acceptable to recuse, recuse yourself from a situation that you feel that you, uh, you don't understand or you don't have a handle on. Okay. So... Let's, let's try to talk about um, there's so much information on this topic and I just um, I struggle with the proper way to present it so that we can we can hit all of the points but maybe I'll start by um, sometimes it's more helpful to rule things out, to negate things, to say what we're not dealing what we're not dealing with, what we're not going to be doing, what we're not going to, what we're not here to do. So perhaps let's start like this. There are different kinds of marital problems, but in general, they say that there are two categories in general the hard problems and the soft problems. And regarding the hard problems, the helpful guideline is the three A's. Abuse, addiction, affairs. Those are hard problems. 
those are situations which compromise the safety or the dignity or the sanity of the person who lives under those conditions. Unless you feel qualified to deal with such an issue, and I'm not going to ask you the criteria by which you should judge whether or not you are qualified. But if somebody told you they needed brain surgery and you had never performed brain surgery or been trained in brain surgery, there would be no hava mina that you would attempt to get involved in trying to help the situation. So too, when you are approached with one of the hard problems, if you don't know that you are equipped to deal with it, if you don't think you know how to do brain surgery, and um, if you haven't done brain surgery <laughs> or studied with a brain surgeon, you're, you're probably not going to just luck out. Then your job, your first job, is to get the person to somebody who does know how to deal with this. I would say, as a general rule, when you are presented with one of the hard problems, you want to recuse yourself automatically and help the person find someone who is going to help them, professional help, serious help. Um, now, having said that, it doesn't mean that once somebody brings up one of the three hard problems that you have to get them off the phone as quickly as possible. Oh no, you brought up one of the three hard problems. Uh, uh, I can't talk to you. Someone else has to help you. I got to go. Bye. You can be compassionate. You can show empathy. You should show empathy. But what you want to understand is that sometimes when people are living in an insane situation, one of the ways they manage is by um, rationalizing it. And rationalization always sounds, not always, but usually sounds pretty compelling. <coughs> it's like the Hayyemim that talks about the Migos in the, in, in the Gemara, about the different arguments. <coughs> <coughs> And why, if somebody could argue such and such, instead they argue something else, so then they're believed because they, they could have argued something that would have been a more, uh, an easier argument. And uh, the Hayyemim says, but what about people who weren't educated? <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. What about people, uh, the example there is given is, is women who uh, you know, traditionally didn't have such an ed education in Talmudic law. So how would they even know which argument they could put forth? And the Rebbe Marash says, when something is personally negea, you become a genius in that subject. So just remember. <laughs> When somebody is living in an insane situation um, that compromises their safety and their dignity and their security and their sanity, um, they will become a genius in figuring out how things make sense or how it's normal. Not always. Sometimes somebody calls you irate, absolutely off the handle. 
but um, very often the person is going to be rationalizing and minimizing. So you want to be careful that as much as you're showing empathy, your empathy shouldn't inadvertently be helping the person to minimize, to continue to minimize the situation. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's going to come in handy. In other words, you know, an empathetic response that would be actually uh, not helpful in a hard problem situation would be one that makes it sound like um, everything's going to be okay, you know, or you know, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure you really care about each other. I'm sure, um, I'm sure it'll be all right. Um, The minimizing is is actually keeping somebody in a situation that's compromising uh, their basic human needs. So what you could say that would be compassionate, but not minimizing is, I uh, you know acknowledge. I hear how painful that is. I hear I hear um, that sounds very difficult. I'm concerned for you. By the way, don't lie. If you're not concerned for the person, don't lie. But if you're not concerned for them, you shouldn't be talking to them should recuse yourself. If you really don't care about their problem, you shouldn't, you shouldn't talk to them. Um, that goes into my first call. Do you have any idea who you're talking to? You know, if there's no human connection, don't go on. Don't, you can't do these things robotically and mechanically. So I'm concerned for you. Um, I'm concerned for your safety. I'm concerned for your well-being. Uh, I don't know how to help you in this situation, but it sounds like you need, you need to get some help. Um, you know, if it's abuse, do you have a safety plan? Um, I, 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 you know, you could ask them even to follow up. Could you let me know that you, you sought some help? But um, that, that's a way of being compassionate where you're not helping them to minimize, which they're probably already doing, but you are... Um, giving them work to do in a gentle way. You're giving them work to do and letting them know that there's an action item here on the table. There's something that needs to be taken care of because it's serious. I can't help you with it, but I do care, and I want you to find uh, the right help. Okay, so those are, those, are the, those are the hard problems. Let's talk about the soft problems. One of the soft problems. Soft problems are actually the most common problems. Now, I don't necessarily mean... <laughs> They're the most common problems that you will hear because a lot of people don't talk about their soft problems. Um, but as far as the problems that exist in marriages are mostly soft problems. And, and surprisingly, most divorces are over soft problems, not hard problems. Soft problems are like growing apart, just drifting apart. Um, disagreements about values. In a, you know, in a, in a religious community, very often, you know, about religious values. Uh, it could be about differences in how to raise the children, you know, chinuch issues. Um, it could be uh, issues about um, intimacy, you know, phys physical things. Um, it could be a financial. Financial is a big thing. Financial stresses, disagreements about finances. Uh, work could be about spending too much time at work, could be about one spouse's hobbies or pastimes or, you know, and again, it's not a hard problem, it's not one of the three A's, so their hobby isn't, you know, an addiction, but it's nonetheless, it's something that's disruptive of life. 
um, it could just be that they fight a lot. You know that they uh, that they don't they they can't communicate, and it turns everything turns into a fight. The, these are all considered to be soft problems, <coughs> and <coughs> like I said, most divorces are over soft problems. Now I'll tell you a startling statistic. Actually. The statistic is only startling, but the Metsias that it represents actually didn't startle me at all. I was, it actually confirmed something for me. I, I, I saw recently that according to one study at least, 70% of soft problems are never resolved. I don't know if that depresses anybody or relieves you, but seven, according at least to one study, 70% of soft problems are never resolved. What does that mean? Um, not everyone is miserable. There are people who are happy. There are people who are happily married with a soft problem, or two, or three. You know? um, and they figure out how to deal with it. They figure out how to live with it. A soft problem, although soft problems are the, hardest, are, are the, the highest incident of divorces caused the most amount of divorces. The truth is, you can live with them. They're not deal breakers. It might be something that a person doesn't like and might pain them, maybe even deeply, but you can live with it. You can live with it. So what's the point here, at least for us? One of the reflexes, I think, I think it's just hardwired. It's a human reflex. And I think if you're a Lubavitcher, it's amplified. You have it even more intensely. Is that when someone tells you about a problem, the reflex is, we got to think of a solution. And the truth is, first of all, who says you have to have a solution? Maybe you don't have a solution. Second of all, maybe there doesn't even have to be a solution. Not only you don't have to have the solution, maybe there doesn't have to be a solution. We don't have to try to fix every problem. So somebody comes to us and they talk to us about a soft problem, although it causes a lot of pain, and it does, um, our reaction, our gut reaction, our instinctive reaction to try to, to solve the problem, we probably we should table that, we should put it aside, and um, replace it with, with, a, with another reaction. And what's the reaction that we should probably have when somebody describes a soft problem? Is not to try to fix it, but to see if there's a perspective we can offer. Again, think about it like this. They're coming to you as a mashpia, as a friend, I think, by the way, that's also important to clarify. When, when, when someone comes to you and talks to you, what role are you in? Are you wearing your, your mashpia hat? Are you wearing your friend hat? You have to know. You do have to know what hat you're wearing. Um, but let, let's say they come to you as a mashpia. They're telling you about the problem. Obviously, they understand that you're going to come with a Torah perspective. That's why they're asking you. They're asking for a Torah perspective. They're asking for a Chassidish perspective. And, it's a, and if it's a soft problem, 
there's no harm in offering a Hasidic perspective. I think one of the things that we might have to get over <coughs> is our, um, maybe it's an inferiority complex, um, but that we're afraid to offer a Torah perspective to the issues that people grapple with. And if you look through the Igris, and you look at the letters where the Rebbe is advising about Shalom Bayis, what do you see? What do you find? The Rebbe will, well, the Rebbe will say, speak to Yedidim Mevinim, friends who understand. The Rebbe will say, Yedidim Mevinim who are Rabbonim, or Rabboni Anash. You find different permutations, different combinations of it. But the Rebbe clearly encourages <coughs> that people should reach out to friends. They should reach out to Mashpiyim, Rabbanim. So I, I don't think we have to be afraid of that. I don't think we have to pretend that the entire topic of Shalom Bayis is off limits. I mentioned before, there are the three hard problems and I might add to the three hard problems, um, mental illness. There are the, the hard problems that we have to know we, we, we have, we're not equipped to deal with. And we have to be, have the humility and the honesty to, to compassionately steer the person to the professional help that they need. But if it's a soft problem issue, there is no reason why we have to feel an inferiority complex about offering a Torah perspective. That is with the caveat that we understand what we're offering is a Torah perspective. And I'm putting the Hadgosha on the word perspective, not on the word Torah. The fact that it's based on Torah, that, that, that goes without saying. That goes without saying, that's what I said. They came to you because you represent the Chassidish perspective. I'm emphasizing Torah perspective as opposed to what? Advice. You don't have to tell anybody what to do. You don't have to give them instructions. They would appreciate clarity so that they can make their own decisions. That's called perspective. You see, this is, this is the style, this is the Rebbe's style in general is to help people find their own clarity. I think it's interesting, you know, the, the, the column that I write in Ami Magazine is it's popular outside of Lubavitch, I think much more outside of Lubavitch than inside of Lubavitch, because I think the people in Lubavitch know exactly what I'm doing. It's just a poor imitation of Igor's Kodesh, and everybody gets that. But outside, they're like really blown away by it, because they don't realize what I'm really doing. And um, the, the most common compliment that I get outside of Lubavitch's, oh, I love those columns. It's, it's brilliant what you do, how you turn the, per the person's question into their answer. And I tell them, I say, first of all, I didn't come up with that. That wasn't my invention. That's, that's, that's the Lubavitch Rebbe. That's the way the Rebbe answered questions. And, and, and I say, second of all, I don't turn their question into an answer. They're, they're giving you the answer. You have to just rearrange it and give it back to them. The classic story of this is, you know, the Jonathan Sachs story, which I think, uh, I believe he told at the Kinnis the year that he spoke, 
Well, he writes to the Rebbe, should I become the next chief rabbi of Great Britain? And the Rebbe circles should and circles I, and he makes arrows transposing them. He crosses out the crooked part of the question mark so it turns into a period. And the Rebbe sends back the letter, Jonathan Sachs' own piece of paper, and it now reads, I should become the next chief rabbi of Great Britain. So, <coughs> somebody told me recently that um, the doctor who is the, who, the medical professor, the physician who's considered the father of modern medicine, the Canadian doctor named, I think, Osler was the name. So his famous quote was, always listen to the patient, he's telling you the diagnosis. So when I heard that, I said, wow, you know, that's, that's true. That really is true. People know, generally speaking, <clears throat> people know the answers to their own questions. If they know the answer, so then why are they confused? They're confused because they don't realize that they know the answer. They're stating it as a question, so you give it back to them as an answer. So the skill of a mashpia is to be able to hear the answer when the person tells it to you. And this, again, ties back into my first point, which is probably my only point tonight, which is do you have any idea who you're talking to? Are you connecting on a human level? You have to listen. You have to connect to this person. You have to listen. Somebody told me once, listen, in English, the, the word listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, is oisius silent. The, the letters of the word listen are the letters of the word silent. Sometimes we're, we, we call it listening, but what we're really doing is taking turns speaking. You know, you're waiting for the other person to, to finish up so you can say something brilliant. And it's easy to fall into that mode, in, you know, in mashpia mode. This person called me. I'm in the mashpia mode, right? It's milamayla lamata. And so uh, you know, I'm the one. I know what I'm talking about. They don't know what they're talking about. So I'll let them, you know, prattle on until they're done saying their foolishness. And when they're done, I'm going to say something smart. It's not going to work that way. It's not going to work that way. How about we look at it like this? This is a holy person, a neshama, was sent to this world with a unique shlichus, a unique mission that causes great nachas to Hashem. Part of that mission involves overcoming difficulties. You were zeiche, the ebishter let you be a shliach to help this person in one of their challenges that they're going through in their shlichus in life. That should fill you, like I mentioned before, with awe, trepidation, a feeling of respect. It always happens to, they say, I don't know firsthand, but they say it happens you know, at some point to physicians, that they start to look at people as bodies, as a piece of meat. And then and, and, and they can no longer be helpful and you objectify the human being. And it's an occupational hazard, right? There's a certain amount of detachment. <clears throat> if you wouldn't have, we'll talk about boundaries, God willing. If you wouldn't have detachment, then you wouldn't be able to, to do your job. But the opposite of detachment isn't to objectify the person, to turn them into a thing. We'll talk about it, God willing, about healthy boundaries, how to detach in a, in a, in a respectful way. But the first thing, first and foremost, is to connect on a human level. And if you don't feel that you're connecting on a human level, 
you shouldn't be not only you shouldn't be talking to the person and, and, and responding to their issues, you probably shouldn't even be listening to their issues. It's probably inappropriate for you to listen to somebody talk about their private painful situation when you don't really feel a human connection. So the first thing is you got to listen. And listen means to be silent. It means to really soak it in. And it means to be on the lookout for the answer. The person very often is going to tell you their solution, sooner or later. You don't have to rush it. It might not be right away. So a good mashpia is going to try to guide the person to recognizing their own answer. In other words, when you give good advice, you really didn't give any advice. And the person says, you know, I knew that all along. Then you know you're on the money. When the person, you know, I knew that all along. I always knew. You didn't tell me anything I didn't know. That's the best compliment. Somebody once brought a safer to the Rogachava. And the Rogachava was known for having a very uh, sharp disposition. The guy wanted a haskama. The Rogachava told him that you have chidushim, uh, azach chidushim, that even uh, such chidushim, that even Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know. In other words, he was telling him, that it wasn't Torah, he made it up, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't one of the Shivan Panim Latayra. So what, one of the hallmarks of one of the Shivan Panim Latayra of Amis is a person who says, well, well, will say to you, you know, I always kind of knew that. I always kind of knew that. Okay. Now let's talk about, you know, after you're listening and you're hearing, how do you respond? How do you respond? Well, first of all, you know, there's a word in Lakote Teira. The Alter Rebbe says that uh, the reason you can't have barzel on the Beis Hamikdash on the stones, you're not allowed to cut it with uh, with metal, is because barzel is uh, is destructive. It's used for destruction. And barzel is Roshetevis Bila Rachel Zilpa Leia, which is the Yemois. The question is, how could something with the Rosh Tevis of the Amois be destructive? You're talking about the holiest people, and uh, the, the, the sum total, the composite, is something that causes destruction. So the Altarab explains, it's not the uh, components, it's the, it's the order. It's the order. In Barzal, the Rosh Tevis of the Amois is out of order. You have the, the main one uh, going after the, 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 the maid. You have the young one coming before the, the old one. It's all messed up. It's not the right order. So order makes a big difference. In other words, sometimes it's not what you say. You could say the same exact response. But if you say it before listening... It might be the same exact response. After listening, you might say the same exact response that you would have said before listening, but having said it after listening makes it a totally different response. It's all about the order. It's like in comedy. The most important part of telling a joke is timing. It's a known thing. It's timing. It's all about timing. So <clears throat> how do we respond? Well, one thing is compassion. We mentioned that before we want to affirm um, that we hear the person. 
Um, we want to, another thing is, if you're listening properly, you're, you're, you, the way you're gonna answer will almost come automatically. Another part of listening properly is, listen for the feeling. Because a lot of times I think we can get hyper-focused on the information. We can get focused on, oh, oh, and then what happened? You know, the details. And then you did what? Well, what did he say? And, and, and um, sometimes, you know, that, that's a distraction. It's actually a distraction. So when we listen well, we want to hear the emotion. Obviously, you want to hear the words as well and the information. But there, there's, there's more than information. There's, there's emotion. So if, when, if you actually listened and now you're responding, one of the things you can respond, well, if you actually listened and you heard an emotion, what would be one of the responses you could offer back when you're done listening? What? You could specifically identify the emotion, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Like you could say, oh, I hear that you are very frustrated right now. You know, if you actually heard them being frustrated. Or, oh, I hear that you're very angry. Or, I, feel, I, I hear that you're afraid. I hear a lot of fear. I hear that you're very afraid. Obviously, you don't make a list of, oh, angry, um, betrayed. Uh, <laughs> you know, just pick one of them. I hear that you're feeling very uh, beside yourself with rage, right? Is that right? Did you feel that way? I don't know. Sort of, Rabbi. You're... <laughs> No, it's got to be real. But if you're listening, again, they're telling you everything. They're telling you everything. You're telling it back to them. You're telling it back to them. So the first thing is just, just to empathize, which means to identify, correctly identify the emotion that you heard. I, honestly, I mean, I feel like this stuff here, what I'm, what I'm describing, this avoids so many other problems. So many problems of bad hashba. Should we be honest? Isn't, there is such a thing as bad hashba. There's, there's bad hashba. I mean, it, it's a real thing. So many, and it causes devastating, I mean, sometimes it causes devastating results. But so many of the, the, the pitfalls of bad hashba, we could bavorn and we could eliminate just by slowing down, getting in touch with, with, our, with our humanity, with our compassion, and connecting to another human being. With awe, with trepidation, with respect. And again, I'm going to get to the boundaries because that has a lot to do with the boundaries. Um, there's a tendency sometimes to, when somebody's talking about very private things, that we take that as a cue that there's no more boundaries, and it's not true. You know, when you're, when, when, when you're looking at somebody emotionally naked, you have to be more respectful of them, not less. So, but we'll get to that. I, boundaries is a big thing. Now, I've teased you about five times that we're going to get to boundaries, but let, let, let's talk a little bit more about the response. So there's the compassion, there's connecting to the emotion, there's identifying the emotion. Okay. There is affirming, and this can't be a lie as well. This has to be real. It has to be based on what they've told you or what you know about them. Pro you know, pr probably you know the person from other contexts. So you can say, you know, I know that you're a good person. I know that you really care a lot about your marriage. Or I know that you would never purposely want to hurt somebody. 
Whatever it is, I mean, it's not a lie, it's something real, but you're affirming. Um, you want to make it really Jewish? You got to believe it. And if you don't, uh, if you're not in touch with your belief in it, you know, learn a, learn a sicha and go think about it. But, you know, if, if you mean it, you could definitely say, if you mean it, don't say if it's fake, but if you mean it, you could say, you know, you are a neshama. And you only want to do good. You only want to do what brings pleasure to Hashem. I know that about you. I know you want to do the right thing. I mean, we say that, that Amam says we say that even about somebody that says about him, Kaifen, I say that you have to beat him up. About the recalcitrant husband. So, you can get in touch with the, uh, with the goodness of, of any Jew. You can, you know, if you want to. Um, what else do we do? Oh, if you know the other spouse, you might say an affirmation, an affirmative statement, a positive statement about the other spouse as well. Again, it can't be made up. I mean, if you never met the spouse, don't, don't say it. But, you know, you can say a positive statement. It doesn't have to be taking sides. That's another thing. You don't want to ever take sides. Not to take sides against the person who's confiding you and, and not to take sides with them. In fact, I saw, I think I found at least four letters in the Igris where the Rebbe advised that family members, as a policy, should not get involved in Shalom bias issues for one reason, because they will not be able to help themselves from taking sides. The family members are going to take sides, and, and when, you, when, you, when you're trying to help someone with Shalom bias issues, you cannot take sides. It's not about who's right or wrong. Even in a hard problem, you're not taking sides. Even in a hard problem, you're, I mean, you're not taking sides. You're expressing concern. You're saying, I'm, I'm concerned for your safety, for your welfare, for, for, for your security. Even in a hard problem, you're not taking sides. So, so how much more so in a soft problem, um, you know, we're, not, we're not taking sides. So uh, making positive, affirmative statements about the person, about, um, about their spouse, you know, about their family in general. You're a wonderful family. You know, I really, you know, I've always been impressed with you. Uh, again, it's not flattery. You're, the, the point is that you're empowering the person. You want to empower the person. You want to build the person up in honest ways. Why? Because ultimately, they have to see the answer. Let me put it another way. Any answer that you have to spoon-feed somebody that they don't believe and they don't get it and they don't see it on their own, doesn't matter how good your answer is, it's useless to them. It's totally artificial. It, 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 it's like... I'll give you a muscle in, in learning. It's like uh, somebody tells you how to learn a teisvist. They don't teach you how to learn the teisvist, they tell you, and you can actually go and say the teisvist as if you understood it, but you don't. And, and, but no, but you, you could fool somebody that you do, but what would be the proof that you don't? 
Not on this Teisvis. But the proof would be on the next Teisvis, you wouldn't have any skills based on the previous one to learn the next one. You follow what I'm saying? Anybody can repeat answers that they were told. Anybody can repeat truths that, I mean, that, that anyone can sloganize. And, 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 and if I can get on my soapbox for one moment about what I talk, when I'm talking about when I'm talking about bad hashpa, one of the hallmarks of bad hashpa is sloganizing. Especially in Chabad, when Chabad Mont Pnimius, and we have the deepest ideas, and when we reduce them to slogans, this isn't just about shalom bias issues. This could be about anything. Um, you know, when we take a deep concept and we turn it into a, into a bumper sticker, and, and part of the reason why it's so damaging is what I was talking about before, about there has to be a human connection. Whipping out slogans on someone is, is demeaning and dehumanizing because it's, it's, it's a conversation ender. You know, when the Bachar goes to the Mashpia and he confesses his deep, dark secret that, you know, he doesn't realize is everybody's deep, dark secret, and, and the Mashpia's response is a one-liner. You know, and, but it, not just Stam a one-liner, a holy one-liner, you know, something from the Rebbeim. Trach gut wird sein gut. Well, how do, you, how do you argue with that? <laughs> what are you, a kaifer? You can't argue with Trach gut sein gut. The conversation's over. It's a safe posok. We're done. We're done. Conversation's over. And it's so antithetical to Chassidus Chabad, which avort in Chabad, you know, the Rebbe wrote a sefer called Hayyem And the subtitle of Hayyem is Oyer Zerua, implanted light or seeds of light. You know what that means? Hayyem might be two, three sentences, two, three lines. It, might, you know, you can, it takes you 45 seconds to read it, but it's like a seed. It's a seed because it grows all day and all year, and it takes a deeper meaning the longer it sticks with you, right? So Chabad, avort, isn't a slogan that ends a conversation. Avort is actually, Amashpir should sit down, and he'll say, L'chad river. And now he's going to fabreng for six hours on L'chad river. Because that's how rich and that's how deep those words are. You understand? It's the, it, it, it's the opposite direction. So when we sloganize, first of all, it, it, it's take, it, you, it creates a power discrepancy because you can't argue back with a slogan, right? It's, it's, by definition, I have already won the game once, I, once, I, once I've invoked a slogan. But, but, but second of all, and this is what I, how, I, how I began when I, when I brought up what, what's, so, what's so useless about slogans. The person doesn't know what they're saying. They don't know what they're saying. They're repeating words that you told them. How useful is it going to be in implementing into real-life situations? Real life is complicated. Real life is, is messy. How useful is it going to be to implement something that they, that they don't connect to on a personal level? Interesting. Not again, not to get off topic too far afield, but you know, Lagbaimer was last week. So the, the when the Rebbe came out with the twelve psukim, one of the things the Rebbe said was he said deep psukim, adaranda psukim, mekinoyis klayb, adaranda psukim, mebizolam hamidzelwa inhalt. These psukim, other psukim. The point is the, is the concepts, the content. 
And that I've explained the reason these Pesukim were chosen is because they have content that every child can understand and every child can explain. They were, each of the Pesukim were chosen for two reasons. Every child can understand it and every child can explain it to another child. And the Rebbe even describes there this beautiful hypothetical scenario of these children who are playing and one of them starts to talk about one of the concepts, one of these 12 concepts. Because it just, it's so natural to him, it just comes up in his playing with his friends. And, and it's interesting that... 12 psukim became psukim balpeh. It became the memorization of, of the words, which there's, there's a kedusha to that. We see that the Rebbe took part in the miras psukim, and there's a, definitely there's something holy about that. But the main thing of the 12 psukim, and the Rebbe said it was part of mivtzachinuch, which the Rebbe said mivtzachinuch is not to be mechanech children, but to turn children into mechanchim, which is typical, you know, the Rebbe's whole style, empowering people. Not to be mechanech children, to turn children into mechanchim, right? And how do you ch turn children into mechanchim? You got to arm them. You got to give them artillery. You got to give them uh, weapons in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a positive sense. You know, you got to give Tzivas Hashem the, the weapons they need. The weapons are the concepts. Again, my point is, we don't need to give people catchphrases. Catchphrases sound great, but in real life, when you actually have to implement them, they don't work so well. What's important is really you know, internalizing ideas, understanding them, connecting to them on a human level. And even if you don't know which piskum in chsidis that idea corresponds to, it's better you should know the concept and not know the words of the piskum than to know the words of the piskum and to not know the concept. Okay, so we want to make sure that the person's answer is their own answer. Why? So that they understand what their answer is. We want to teach self-sufficiency. You know, one of the Rebbe's klolem in Chinuch is like, not hadloka, but hala, which means self-sufficiency. That ultimately the mechanech is trying to make himself obsolete. What's the greatest nachas of the mechanech? That the, the Talmidim get it on their own. Well, like the Rebbe said, that uh, a person stands up on the words of his teacher, not the words, the, the, the ideas of his teacher after 40 years. Stands up means he becomes, uh, he's able to think in that style. It's actually the Rebbe also says, that he stands up, and also, not not the Rebbe's ideas, but the Rebbe's tzugang, the Rebbe's mahalach, the Rebbe's approach, way of thinking. You know, the Rebbe never told anyone what to think. The Rebbe taught people how to think. So, what's a mashpia? You're not giving people answers. You're giving them a mahalich to their answer. How do you know it's their answer? Because it was theirs all along. Does that sound too, uh, too mystical? Too hocus pocus? They're the expert. They're just lacking clarity. Why? Usually because they're too close to it. What mila do you have over them? What mila do you always have over the mushba? And sometimes it's your only mila over the mushba. Objectivity. I can be objective about you, because I'm not you. That's it. Okay. Maybe I want to mention here, um, when we're offering when we're offering perspective. 
Um, what does perspective look like? What does it mean, perspective? Okay, so we listened. We listened well. We empathized. We affirmed. Now we're offering some perspective. What is perspective? Chassidisha perspective. And we don't have to be embarrassed. We don't have to hide it. That's what they came for. Perspective. Well, first of all, maybe, maybe let's just back up and say it like this. As I said, I think it was the Rebbe Marash, he had a, there was a fire in Lubavitch. There was a fire many times in Lubavitch. And after the fire, he was uh, learning. So somebody, a Mashadas, I think it was, asked the Rebbe, how could he be learning, how could he be concentrating after he just had a fire? So the Rebbe said, well, you also had a fire. And the guy says, I didn't have a fire. And the Rebbe says, no, no, I distinctly remember, you had a fire. No, I didn't have a fire. Yeah, you had a fire. Oh, 10 years ago. I had a fire 10 years ago. Yeah. So, so how can you be calm? Because the fire was 10 years ago. I got over it. So the Rebbe says, it took you 10 years. It took me 10 minutes. What's the vart? That's perspective. That's perspective. So Le Marshall, when a three-year-old gets an ice cream cone and her scoop of ice cream by the way, who designed ice cream cones? Somebody who hates children? Convinced of it. Because you had to actually design the, the combination, like something slippery and heavy on top, uh, on top of something hard on the bottom that does, that, that's lighter than the thing on top. It's pointing in the bottom. There's no way to rest it. The person had, they, they had to have a degree in physics and hate children to, the, to design ice cream cones. I'm convinced of it. Have you ever taken the kids out for ice cream and one of them didn't have their ice cream fall on the, on the floor? Never. It never happened to me. So the child is eating the ice cream cone and the scoop topples off the cone and it splatters on the floor. And when you're three years old, you know, when that happens to a three-year-old, she actually, she's grieving. And you're, you're like, come on, cut it out. It's just ice cream. Stop crying. It's just ice cream. Well, that's not fair. You have perspective. For a three-year-old, when the ice cream falls off the cone, it's not just ice cream. When the ice cream falls off the cone, this is a sign. We will never have anything good ever again. This is the end of life. Because in her tiny little three-year-old perspective, she hasn't had enough experiences. She doesn't have a wide enough view of life. So when the ice cream topples from the cone, that's a devastating experience. Now, you as an adult have had many ice cream cones, and you've lost many scoops, and you've, lost, you've had other losses and bigger losses, and so you have perspective. You know, it's the meich and the godless, relatively speaking. It's perspective. So, as you grow up and you mature, you have more experiences. You have a bigger life. The older you are, the bigger a life you have because the more experiences you've had. So you have more perspective. And what does that mean? That a person who just simply by growing older and, and, and you become wiser. An experienced person becomes wise. What's the wisdom of experience? Is You just have a bigger context so you have more room to fit things. Perspective means a bigger context, more room to fit things. 
Sometimes it happens just by living a longer life. If you lived longer, you have more experiences. Another way you can accelerate that, like that, that, that Rebbe Marash says, it took you 10 years, it took me 10 minutes. One way you can get perspective, and it doesn't require a long passage of time, is through Torah. Torah gives you, I shouldn't say instantaneous, because you actually have to put in the time to toil and to learn it and to get it, but <clears throat> Torah can give you life experience without having to go through all that time. So good hashba with good perspective means, you know, here's how you're looking at it right now. Let me take you up in a hot air balloon so you can see the whole lay of the land. You can still see your problem. It's still not going to be pretty. You're still not going to like it, but you're going to have a bigger perspective. Okay, so one way of giving perspective, and again, we're not fixing the problem. This is not fixing the problem whatsoever. Having perspective on a problem doesn't do anything to fix it or change it. It just gives you more room to deal with it, to handle it. And like I said, so at least according to some studies, 70% of the soft problems don't get resolved. So what should they do with the 70%? We're not going to fix it. Or at least I'm not going to fix it for you. So what can we do? At least can we get some perspective? Maybe you can have a new way of looking at life where within that widened perspective, you can live a happy life and even have a happy marriage with a soft problem that doesn't get resolved. So one way of getting perspective is, I mean, the big way is spirituality. You know, start talking about infinity. When, when you start thinking about you know, infinity, stuff in this world takes on a different scale. Now, you have to be careful about that because, but, but you have to be careful about it, but I believe everything I said so far bavorns the possibility of this being done wrong. What do you have to be careful about? And why did what I say before bavorn this being done, done wrong? What you have to be careful of is sometimes we like to invoke very lofty ideas because it's just a way of depersonalizing, disconnecting, um, getting away from something that's uncomfortable, and just making it really conceptual and abstract, right? And that's the problem, you know, the mashpia who responds to your problem and says, which darga in hishtalsh list that it uh, you know, corresponds to, and it's like, okay, that's beautiful, but what is it, how does this help me, right? How is that practical? Um, so we don't want to do it that way, but like I said, what we spoke about before, bavorns us not doing it that way. And what did I say before? What's the main thing we're trying to do? In fact, if you only hear, hear me say one thing, this is all I need you to hear me say, um, all I want you to hear me say. For the, uh, it, what, what's the main thing we're trying to do? Not give okay, that's what we're not trying to do, not give advice, but what are, what are we trying to do? Hmm? Even perspective is part of it, but the main thing, the whole interaction, what? Empathy is part of it. Empathy is part of it. Affirming is part of it. Perspective is part of it. The main thing, I'm glad we're going through this. Showing them the answer is part of it. Connecting. Connecting. In a human, compassionate way. Look, Sfira Sa'ima, right? Seven weeks. I think we're starting. I didn't count. I have to be so careful. I didn't, I might have, I didn't count yet. I want to be careful. I don't say anything that would make me lose my bracha right now. But um, tonight, I believe we're starting Malchus, right? 
Those who counted yet? I don't know, there's mine in here in New York. Maybe nobody, no, maybe nobody counted yet. There's a reason why Yesoid comes before Malchus. What's Malchus? Malchus is Dibur, is expression. Yesoid is his chabros, his connection. Yesoid has to come before Malchus. What does that mean? Who do you think you're talking to? Do you know me? Do you know my life? Do we have a rapport? Why are you talking to me? If I don't have Yusoid, if I don't have Hishabras, if there's not a relationship, what do I have to offer? Why am I talking to you? Because I, 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 I feel smart to have somebody sit across from me and, and, listen, to my, and listen to my words. <laughs> so there has to be first a real connection and then within the connection, then what are we going to do? We're going to really listen to them as a human being. And we're going to hear the feelings that they're conveying. Then we're going to empathize. Empathy will follow automatically because we heard, we heard a human being who's expressing emotions. Automatically you empathize if you have a heart. And we're going to affirm. We're going to say positive things about them that empower them, that encourage them. Why? Again, it's not going to be lip service because we're connected. There's a relationship. There's a context. And then when we offer perspective, it's going to be real perspective, authentic perspective, perspective that matches the person because it's going to be based on what they told us. We're just going to give it back to them reorganized. So one of the ways of offering perspective, and if you can do it in a genuine way, this is the most powerful way, and this is what chassidus is, is to talk about infinity, to talk about God, to talk about souls, to talk about purpose and mission. One of the ways we lose our perspective is we get so focused on self and we forget what we're here for. And one of the ways we get our perspective back is when we get over ourselves, self-transcendence. I'm not so big and important. My mission is very big and important. My soul was sent here for a reason. My soul was sent here for a mission. And my mission is very important. It affects the very essence of God. But me, little old me, I can laugh at myself. I have perspective. I have perspective. One time, I was a bacher, and I was at a friend's house, an older friend. He was married already, he had kids. And it was a place we used to like to go hang out. You could make Kiddush late on Shabbos day. And I remember one time I was there one afternoon and we're making Kiddush and his eight-year-old son started to cry. And my friend was laughing. I said, why are you laughing? He's crying. So he said, no, no, you don't understand. This is all. He just found out that the cholent is fleshik. He thought it was par. He found out it was fleshik. I still didn't get it. He's like, he wants to make pizza tonight. He just found out. He, so he's crying about that, and you know, it's, I'm trying to tell him it's not a big deal. I don't know why I remember that incident, but I saw this kid like 12 years later. He was 20 years old. I saw him one Shabbos, and I was fabricating with him. I was sitting across from him, and I said to him, do you remember when you were eight years old and you found out that the chalant was fleshik and you cried? And he says, no, I don't remember it. And I said, well, does it sound plausible. He's like, yeah, totally plausible. It could, 
Definitely I can see that happening to me. I don't remember it, but I can definitely see it happening. So I told him, look, I'm not trying to embarrass you. That's not why I'm pointing it out. I'm pointing it out for one reason. That just like something made you cry when you were eight years old, and now when you're 20, that same thing wouldn't make you cry anymore. In fact, you didn't even remember it. So, too, I want you to know, and it's not important what it is, and not my business what it is, but whatever makes you cry today when you're 20, there will come a time when, when that won't have that power over you anymore either. So, one of the ways we offer perspective is by appreciating our lives in the context of infinity. <sighs> that the Abishter existed for eternity before the world and after the world, and yet his taiva was a dirabatahtainim. Now, again, if you're sloganizing and you're using these highfalutin mystical terms to avoid a human connection, then it's going to blow up and it's, and it's, it's bad hashba. But if you can connect humanly and talk about the deepest truths, that's great hashba. That's the best hashba. You can connect humanly and talk about the deepest truths, that's the best. Okay, what's another way of offering perspective? Another way, and this is, is a little bit more simple, does, doesn't require such deep haskala, but one way of offering perspective is just merely to say something like, you know, from what I know, that's a common problem that young couples have. You know, that's a form of perspective. In other words, you're not alone. You're not the only one. No, you're not the only crazy person. You know, my mother told me there are two kinds of people in the world. There's normal people, and there's people that you really know. What's the difference between an adolescent and an adult? One of the differences. When you're an adolescent, you say, why is my family the only crazy family on the block? And then, when you're an adult, you realize all the families on the block are crazy. <laughs> and then you're trying to figure out who you even want to be mashadik your kids to. <laughs> Perspective can just be, you know what? You're not the only one. This is a common thing, yeah. A lot of couples go through this. That's perspective. Um, what's another form of perspective? Like I said, there's a lot of information here tonight. Oh, this is a, this is a form of perspective that comes with a caveat, with a condition. Um, sometimes, and you have to judge if it's appropriate, and even when doing it, even when judging that it's appropriate, you have to be careful how to do it. And after I say this, I'm going to go into boundaries because this is a perfect segue into boundaries. And I promised you five times we're going to talk about boundaries. Um, one of the ways of offering perspective is to, to relate firsthand. You might say, you know what? I know what you're talking about. Or sometimes you can, you can be maramas. You know, sometimes you don't have to tell a mushba. Um, yeah, you know what you're describing? My wife and I went through the exact same thing. But sometimes you can just speak about it in such a way where you, you know it pretty well. Wow, how do you know? I saw it in a book, actually. I read about it. 
Okay. Um, or you could just say, you know, yeah, you know, that's something that I myself went through. Now, the caveat is, if you deem that it's appropriate, one of the things you want to make sure is, first of all, uh, not to then make it about you. <laughs> and then sometimes, you know, and then 20 minutes goes by and you realize you've just been talking about your whole story. And, and you know what? If you're using the mushpa as a mashbia, you know, that's, that's, it's, it's, it's a misuse of the relationship. If you find that you're, you're venting, you need to like stop yourself and be like, okay, and make a mental note. As soon as I hang up the phone with you, I'm calling my mashbia. Oh, I should have mentioned that. Oh, I'm, I'm, I reminded myself. How could you be a mashbia if you don't have a mashbia? It's one of the basic, most basic uh, rules. It's a story about a, a gvir who used to um, used to donate money to Reb Zusha. And one time he came to Zusha's house and he wasn't there. So he asked Zusha's wife, where's, where's the Rav? And she said, he's in Mezrich visiting his Rebbe. And the Gvir says, the Rebbe has a Rebbe? What am I giving money to this guy? I'm going to give the money to the Rebbe's Rebbe. And so, so he, he switched to giving money to the, to the Magid. And then he lost all of his money. So he came to, he came to Zusha. <coughs> and he said, what happened? Why did I lose all my money? I'm giving, uh, I'm giving tzedakah to, to, to the holy uh, Magid. should be a schus for me. And uh, Zusha says, it's true, it is. It's a bigger schus for you to give to the Magid than it is for you to give to, to little old me. That's no question. But let me tell you what happened to Lamaila. They used to look at you and say, this guy, he's not Zaycheh. He shouldn't be a gvir. He's not worthy of it. But you know what? He has a rebbe who's not really worthy of being a rebbe, so we'll cut him some slack. But as soon as you decided that I'm not a rebbe, enough for you, you need the maggot, so then they said, okay. So the rebbe has to have a rebbe, and the, the, the mashbiah has to have a mashbiah, and that's the way it is, okay? So the, the disclosure of personal experience in order to give perspective, you want to be careful. Yeah, one, you're not making the focus about yourself. If you realize, oh, that's another thing I should have mentioned. Know your triggers. Sometimes you have to admit that there's something that you are going to respond on a personal level and you can't be totally objective. So if there's something that still hurts you on a personal level, maybe you went through it, maybe you have a kid who's going through it, and then somebody calls you and they describe this situation. You know, somebody calls you up, <clears throat> they're talking about, um, you know, their son-in-law, I mean, they're talking about their husband, and he has the same exact issue, or the story sounds similar to your son-in-law, and you're irate because every night you're up, you know, until three in the morning with your daughter on the phone, and then you're gonna, that's going to hit that button, and now, now you're not being objective. So know your triggers. I know that's like a term that now became funny to make fun of, but it's a real thing. There are things that are going to push a button in you, and you're not going to react objectively. So at least be aware of it, and... Um, and if you can't be objective about a situation because it hits too close to home, you don't have to tell somebody, oh, you know what, I can't deal with your issue because my son-in-law, the bum, he has the same problem. Like, you don't have to say that. You don't have to say, <laughs> but you, you, <laughs> there are so many ways you could recuse yourself from, from a situation. You know, wow, that's, 
you know, with empathy, with real, real empathy, but like, I don't know. That's, that's tough. I don't know. Um, you know what? I'm feeling like I'm not the right person to deal with. I, 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 I'm not the right person to deal with this for you, and you, I think you really need somebody who's going to be able to help you better. You know, just recuse yourself if you have to. Okay. Um, also, another thing, and now we're going to get into boundaries. When you are sharing, if you're sharing personal experience in order to help give perspective, do it humbly. And what I mean is, let's say you have a situation and it worked out, or you figured out how to live with it. Remember I said 70% of the soft problems, you just learn how to live with it. So let's say there's one of the soft problems the person's talking to you about, you have it in your marriage, you figured out how to just live with it. That doesn't necessarily mean that this person has to, or it doesn't mean they're going to learn how to live with it the same way that you did. So just because that particular tool was effective in your life doesn't mean they have to use that tool. So do it humbly. Just do it humbly. And you might even say, um, you know, this is just my experience, and I don't know if it, if it applies to you or if this would resonate with you, but let me just tell you something from my, from my own life, and uh, you can think about whether or not you identify. Right? That would be a fair way of presenting that. Okay. So let's talk about boundaries. Very, very important. And then I think we've got we to wrap it up and be done. I think that will be our boundary. Boundaries is the cue to have a boundary. You have to end the talk. Okay. What are um, boundary issues? Well, one thing certainly would be if you take sides, you're violating, actually violating this person's boundaries. They came to you in a vulnerable state. They spoke to you about personal issues. That's not an invitation to insert yourself into their life, even if they let you. It's actually taking advantage and it's not healthy for them. And it's not healthy for you. And if you find yourself doing that often, there's some people who are really good at never doing that. Then there's some people who find themselves doing this very often. They get personally caught up in the situation. You want to be aware of that. You want to be aware of that tendency. And maybe even to try to think about why. Why do I do this? Um, not getting into it at length, but sometimes some of us get really interested in other people's lives as a way of avoiding dealing with our own lives. That could be. Um, that might be something you want to be aware of. Um, some of us really need the identity of being the helper. And that becomes really important to be known as the one who is helpful or compassionate or understanding. And that can be very addictive. Uh, the, the drug of approval is the most addictive drug and, 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 and it's really a, a misuse of the whole Mishpia Makabal relationship because then what are you doing? You're using the other person. You're using them to feel useful. And that's, that's not right. You should be of use to them. You should be of service to them, not secretly using them to get a feeling of validation. Everyone knows what I'm talking about? Those who do, do. Those who don't, don't. That's fine. Um, There's a, there's a mission in Pirkei where um, it says a person should pray for the government 
because if it wouldn't be for the, the fear of the government, of the malchus, then people would swallow each other alive. And uh, the safe of that Mishnah, in fact, it's interesting, I gave a class once on this Mishnah in a place where they were using a Nusach Ashkenaz Siddur, and the version of Pirkei they were using in the, in the Ashkenaz Siddur, it's broken up into two different Mishnahs. But the Alter Rebbe was Medayak. The Rebbe says the Alter Rebbe was very uh, exact in how he grouped each Mishnah in Pirkei So in the, in the Alter Rebbe Siddur, so this is one Mishnah, the Reisha, the first clause in the Mishnah is about if it wouldn't be for people's fear of, of the government, they would swallow each other alive. And then the, the second clause of the Mishnah talks about two people who sit together and there's no words of Torah between them. So it says... Uh, in Divrei Tevinehem, what does it say there? That, oh, when there's Divrei Tevinehem, then the Shechina dwells, and then it brings a pasuk that those who meditate upon God's name, Chayish uh, Shmai, that uh, that they uh, bring down, they bring down the Shechina. So the Rebbe asks a few questions about the Mishnah. One of them is Pirkei Avos is supposed to be beyond the letter of the law. So what are we talking about? People killing each other in the streets. I mean that's. That's pretty uh, low level. That's not high level. Also, um, why is it speaking metaphorically? If it wouldn't be for the fear of the, the government, if there wouldn't be rule of law, people would, would murder each other. Say it. They would murder each other. Don't, don't be poetic and say they'd swallow each other alive. And another question that I asks is, um, why are these two statements in one Mishnah? One is about the fear of the government, and the other one is about two people sitting across from each other learning Torah, seemingly totally separate concepts. And the Rebbe asks many other questions about this Mishnah. But the way the Rebbe explains it is like this. Malchus, like we mentioned before, is expression. So when a person expresses himself, that means he's taking his inner world and he's putting it out there for another human being. Okay, it's an act of, of vulnerability. And, and, and it's unique to human beings. And that's why we're called... The, the whole species is called minamadaber, we're called the, 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 the talking species, because we're able to take our inner world and put it out there for others. And, and there's something um, godly about that, and therefore we should be in awe. So the yira of malchus means being in awe of another human being's capacity to express his or her inner world. However, when that's lacking, when we're not in awe of the fact that a human being is expressing his or her inner world, then you swallow each other alive. Swallowing each other alive doesn't mean murder. Swallowing each other alive is talking about not something that's illegal. It's not even asr. It's not, like, not, not, not against American law. It's not against halacha. It, it's not in Sefer Minhagim that it says, you know, that we don't ain't noyigin, that we don't do it. You can get away with it. But it's not nice. And what it means is, consuming another human being. When they open themselves up, when they express their malchus, when they, when they talk and they show you their inner world, you should be in awe, and awe, you know, like just like this ava and this yira, so awe is kirov, I mean, ava is kirov, we take a step closer to the beloved. Awe is richok, you take a step away from the one whom you are in awe of. So when a person bears their soul, there's a certain awe, respect, take a step back, don't take a step forward, and for sure, don't engulf them, don't swallow them alive. 
So we have to, boundaries really means, first of all, don't become a player in their drama. If it's a shalom bias issue, don't become the go-between. Do not become you know, shuttle diplomacy where you're the, the, the one who goes back and forth between the spouses. Bad idea. Now you're, you're not objective anymore. Now you're part of the game. Tag, you're it. Now you're one of the players in the game. You became part of it. You, you can't be objective anymore at that point. I think Avin Abaychen, that a litmus test is that after somebody tells you their private issues, if they feel embarrassed to see you again, you might want to search yourself. You might want to search yourself. Now, it could be nothing that you did wrong. But at least I've found that if you are respectful and you are in awe, and there's even a spiritual element, which I'm talking about, you might call it trying to see someone as an ashama. You try to see someone as an ashama, what are you, a rabbi? I don't know, it says in Pedagamid base to try to see a yid as an ashama. I'm just talking about basic, basic Yiddishkeit here. Try to regard somebody as an ashama. And then I believe one of the, the, um, the results of that is that someone who's been vulnerable to you will not be ashamed in your presence. It's sort of like spouses, whose spouses have been vulnerable to each other, ideally, on every level, emotionally, psychologically, physically. And if they do it right, they don't lose respect for each other. They're only more in awe of each other. So Bezeranpin in microcosm, Meshpia and Makabal on a much lower level, albeit on a lower level, when we, when we listen with respect, um, then we don't lose respect for somebody. They don't, they don't, they're not afraid to face us again after, after they've told us whatever they've, whatever they've told us. Um, but, but the main thing that is going to make or break that is your own boundaries. Your own boundaries. You lucked out. You are zeichet that the Eibishter is giving you a chance to be helpful to this person. That should be humbling. That's very humbling. We should never become crass. We should never become um, casual about the awesomeness of the responsibility and never take it lightly. And never, never, for one, never even once think that, you know, oh, I'm so smart, it was me, I'm so good. We should, uh, again, like I started off saying, do you have any idea who you're talking to? You're talking to Echelik Elikami Mamamish, this is serious business, take it seriously. First and foremost, do no harm. Don't make it any worse. And realize that um, you know, people are good. People are wise. People have the answers to their problems. 
And it's a, it's a schus to be part of them in the act of self-discovery and finding, and finding their own solutions, their own solutions, the solutions that they own, that belong to them, not the solutions that you just uh, wrote down on a piece of paper for them to repeat. Anything else? I mean, there's, there, there, there's much more to be said on the topic, but... Uh, do we do Q&A? Yes, officially we do. Okay, fine, great. So how does that work? How does the Q&A work? Moderation, or I, is there a moderator, or I, I have to moderate? Do you, do you, you never say solve problems to the therapist? Yeah, and I'm gonna repeat, I'm gonna repeat the question, yeah. question was, are soft problems never to be sent to a therapist? So first of all, I want to um, just point out that Shailas uh, Chochem, that the question of a wise person is half an answer. So I want to point out that Rabbi Azdaba's question has an answer within it, which is, it's mashma in his question that hard problems you always refer to a therapist. I don't know if everyone picked up on that. I just wanted to, okay, just for the sake of, you know, clarity. Soft problems, do you never refer to a therapist? No, there's no cloud like you never do. It's just not um, foolish to not mention it. You have, to use, you have to use your common sense. If you feel like they would benefit from it, then certainly offer that as a, as a possibility. I don't think you ever have to be adamant in saying you really need professional help unless it's one of those three, and I, uh, the, three, the three A's, the uh, addiction, abuse, affairs, and I, ad I added mental health. And sometimes, by the way, the very nature of mental health is, if you're not an expert in mental health, it's very hard to identify an issue of mental health. Therefore, I'll qualify by saying, if the story is so confusing to you that you think, you know what, I think someone here is not well, and I don't know who it is, that's fine. That means you're suspicious that there's an issue of mental health. Treat it as a hard problem. Refer it. Refer it to professional help. But with the solved problems, you, you know, you use your compassion and use your common sense. Yeah. Okay, so the first question, and then I'll let you do your second question after I answer the first question, because I'll forget the second question if I answer both of them at the same time. Um, first question was, how do you follow up? I'm going to put that in the category of boundaries, and I'm going to say, you can ask someone, would you mind following up with me? But um, if they don't want to follow up with you, or, or they don't, and if they don't, probably means they didn't want to, right? What's the story about the little boy in Cheder? He cried, he says, Rebbe, Rebbe, Shlemy wanted to hit me. And the teacher says, well, that's terrible to cast aspersions upon Shlemy. Well, how do you even know he wanted to hit you? And the little boy was a little gemara cup. He said, if Shlemy didn't want to hit me, then why did Shlemy hit me? Okay, nobody ever laughs at that joke. That is my 100% surefire bomb every time. Okay, that's, that's my Moab. That's my mother of all bombs. Okay, um, 
if they didn't follow up with you, they probably didn't want to follow up with you. Um, part of respect is, is let that go. Let that go. Oh, what's your second question? Yeah. Okay, that's a great question. The second question, um, I, I threw out a word abuse and I didn't define it. So nobody asked me what it meant. Um, or at least not, 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 at, not at first. I got away with just using a word. By the way, that's a great example of, some, of another thing I was talking about, using slogans. That's a great example. And, and you did a good thing. You said, hey, you used a word. I know it's a word because I hear people use it. It's like one of those words that people use. What does it mean? What are you talking about when you said that word? That was great. Okay. So what does abuse mean? Well, the obvious things we know, you know, physical abuse. And it's not for you to decide whether it was a one-time incident or if it's a repeated uh, pattern. Be machmer. Err on the side of caution. You know, because very often, if they tell you it happened once, that's the time they're telling you about, okay? Um, but then there's all types of abuse that are not physical, that is not, not physical in nature. Um, abuse, I guess, if you wanted to have a way of, of, wrapping, of, of wrapping our minds around it, would be any type of control where one partner is seriously controlling the other partner. Um, so, in other words, if you think about physical abuse, it's not the violence that makes it abusive. The violence makes it violent. What makes it abusive is it's a way of controlling someone. It's intimidation. It's controlling them. And more than the intimidation, it's the humiliation. So, if you think about it that way, well, there's a lot of ways to intimidate or to humiliate. And, and, and they don't, they're not as overt as, as, as actually physically hitting someone, but it could be something like um, financial control or, or, or treating somebody like a child. Like, you know, um, I, I texted you and uh, you didn't tell me exactly where you were within one minute. And, you know, like, like that type of controlling behavior. Anything uh, not allowing them to have finances, not allowing them to have access to, to other people, to family, to friends, um, telling them what to wear, inappropriate things like that, that one respectful adult doesn't tell another respectful adult, that's abusive. That's abusive. Does that answer the question? Abuse, not doing something. You mean like uh, you know, like silent treatment, freezing somebody out. Again, the, I said if if it's use if it's using it to control somebody, then it's abusive. So if you if that's what you're hearing, you know, somebody tells you, um, my wife hasn't given me eye contact in in a month. Uh, that sounds abusive. Yeah. That sounds abusive. A, a, again, err on the side of, of caution. You don't have to be right. You just have to know this is above my pay grade. I, I can't deal with this. You could be wrong. But if you feel like one person is humiliating, intimidating, 
manipulating, um, playing with the other person's mind, you know, gaslighting them, like playing with their mind, like making them doubt reality, doubt the truth. Like if somebody calls you up and they're expressing like confusion about what's real, I don't even know what's real, that's abusive. That's definitely abusive. And probably the other two A's at the same time as well. Okay. Um, any other questions? Hmm? There's different types of addiction. Somebody could have a gambling addiction. Yeah. It's not necessarily you know, harmful to the mental health. It's harmful to the mental health. Right. So the question was, are, is addiction the same way? In the same way as, like I said, abuse, it almost doesn't matter the form of abuse. It matters, you know, all abuse is basically abuse. It's all the same in, in, that, in, that, in that respect of, of... Let me go back to something I said earlier about... Ishes swallowing each other alive. Any relationship that dehumanizes, that takes away someone else's autonomy. Autonomy means I'm I'm a balabos on myself. I get to make decisions. I'm an adult. Any relationship that strips somebody of that either by outright refusing to let them do it or by undermining their self-confidence so they feel they can't do it, is abuse. Okay, but to answer your question about addiction, addiction does not matter addiction to what. It really doesn't matter addiction to what. And like in your question, you said, well, what if it's just gambling, which is not as destructive? And the answer is, first of all, I, I, I'll, I would like to take you to an open GA meeting, to a Gamblers Anonymous meeting, and hear about the, the, the absolute horror stories about the lives that fell apart because of gambling addiction. Um, but it doesn't matter what they're addicted to. Addiction actually, there's a whole other talk, and you know we don't have to have it tonight, has very little to do with the drug of choice or the, or the behavior that the you know the compulsive behavior or the the, the form of acting out. It's 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 something deeper than that. And the that sada shava b'neim between all of the addictions, or one at least one sada shava, is that it destroys intimate relationships. That when a person has their addiction, they cannot have genuine relationships with human beings. It's impossible to have both. So it doesn't matter if the person is married to their <laughs> pornography or married to their gambling or married to their alcohol or married to their, uh, their opioids. It doesn't matter. The point is, they're married to that. They're not available for other relationships in their life. That's, that's the Tzadashavah Meneim. That's addiction. Okay, I have a question here in writing. How does one support a family member who is the addict or abuser? Okay. So the question is, it's not the victim, it's the perpetrator. And I would say, in very much the similar way that you respond, in very much the same way that you respond to, to the other party. It's, your condemnation isn't going to help. Uh, making them feel guilty isn't going to help. But telling them compassionately, if you can find it within yourself, I know that when you hear that somebody is perpetrating 
harm on another individual, the first thing that happens is it's impossible to feel any compassion. But if you can try to find it within yourself um, to tell the person, I'm really concerned about what you're telling me. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not just afraid for your, your wife, your, your husband, your children. I, I, I'm afraid for you. I'm afraid for your safety. I'm afraid for your well-being. Um, what you're telling me is really serious. I, I'm, you really you have to get professional help. You have to do it as soon as possible. If you, if you would follow up with me and let me know you got the help that you need, I would appreciate it. So you're putting it in their court to follow up with you. But again, it's the same way that you respond to someone who says, my spouse is the addict or, or, or the abuser. So too, if you're talking to the addict or the abuser, the same compassionate response, I'm very concerned for you. This is very alarming. But you know, screaming at them, condemning them. I've, uh, yeah, OK, sure. Yeah. And you're advised not to do that. But if there's no communication there, how do you address it without becoming the messenger? The question was, when communication is broken down, how do you avoid being the go-between? Um, that's a good question. But let, let's back up and ask this question. Who says, it's a real question, not a rhetorical question. Who says it's your job to fix the communication breakdown? You're going to say, but, but they came to me. They're asking me. Well, you know, you don't have to give everybody everything they ask. Well, well then what am I doing? Well, who says you have to do anything? But if you want to do something, you want to do something, so let me offer an alternative thing that you could do without becoming the, the, the in-between, the, 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 the mamutza hamachaber, or the mamutza hamafsik, as it usually is. We said that 70% of all soft problems people tend to live with. If there's a communication breakdown, and it's not in one of the, the categories of hard problems, maybe that your way of being helpful is to simply help the person find perspective in dealing with the pain of the communication breakdown. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes when you help them to deal with it gracefully, so they're not feeding it, at least now they're not feeding it, because a lot of times with a communication breakdown, it's self-perpetuating. When they're able to have a little perspective on it, and they can deal with it more gracefully, with more dignity, sometimes the situation turns around. Not, not always, we can't, control, we can't control that. But very often it gives it the space that it needs to change. I have found that, you know, just like in Shavuos is coming up, just like in Torah, there's more mitzvahs leisase than mitzvahs essay. There's 365 versus 248. And when it comes to the seyasadibris, they're almost all leisase, they're almost all lay. Um, that very often, when it comes to an impasse, you know, when things are stuck, the, the, the instinctive response, the, you know, the, the animalistic adrenaline rush response is I gotta do something. What do I gotta do? 
You know, what do I got to say? Tell me what to say. Tell me what to do. Um, be this way. Be that way. And, and very often, the, the more effective response is, there's not something you need to be doing that you're not doing. There's something that you need to not be doing that you are doing. There's a, there's a lace say, so to speak. And sometimes when you back off and you disengage and you give room, you give space, then the dynamic can change. So to answer your question, again, if there's a communication breakdown and they're inviting you to be the, the shuttle diplomat, who says that's what, how, what best serves the relationship? Perhaps, if possible, you'll help the person. And this is another point maybe I should have made more clearly. Sometimes someone comes to you with a marriage problem doesn't mean that you have to help them with their marriage. Sometimes, maybe even I should say more than sometimes, you're helping the person with themselves. In other words, maybe let me, let me back up and say, say another cloud goggle here in life. Um, I, one time I was working for a nonprofit many, many years ago, and part of the training is they brought a time management guy in. And so he asked everybody to write down on a paper the definition of time management. And then he went around, and everybody had to say their definition. And after everybody said it, he said, you're all wrong. There's no such thing as time management, which I thought was kind of manipulative because <laughs> he knew we were all going to be wrong. Why did he do that to us? But at any rate, he says, there's no such thing as time management. You cannot manage time. Time doesn't go slower or faster than it always goes. There is self-management. And I thought, oh, that's a good word. And then I started to think about it. And I started thinking, you know, what, what, what's marriage or shalom bayis? Spouse management. What's chinuch? Child management. I mean, this is the way we think of it. That I'll only have shalom bayis if I can get this person who I'm married to to do what he or she ought to be doing. Spouse management. Or my kid would be a good kid if I could just get my kid to... Child management. And very often, I'm saying very often as an understatement, the response is self-management. There's something in your own aveda that you need to be doing. There's a story about uh, the, the Ruzhin had an enical, the Husyatnerov. They, they stam from, uh, from Ruzhin. So anyway, it's from, from the Ukraine, but they were in Vienna between the wars. So Vienna is now more of a Hasidic place, or at least there's a Hasidic area. But in the 30s, Vienna was like very like you know Sigmund Freud and coffee shops and universities, very cosmopolitan, assimilated. So the Husyatnerov, Hasidic Rebbe, is walking down the street in his Streimel, and a German reporter saw him and said, "Who is this?" And they said, "Oh, he's the Husyatnerov, and he's not a regular rabbi, a rabbiner in German. He's a wunder rabbiner. He's a wonder rabbi." So he says, "Oh, the reporter, I want to get an interview with a wunder rabbiner, a wonder rabbi." So they set up the interview. And the reporter says, you know, tell me, what is a wunder rabbina? What's a wonder rabbi? So the, the Husyat Nerov says, okay. So a regular rabbi, like, he, he controls a kehila, a shul, congregation. And then you have a bigger rabbi, Shtot Nerov, he controls a city. And then you have like a chief rabbi, he controls a country. And then you have a wunder rabbina, the wonder rabbi, he controls himself. <laughs> so... And I, and I remember that this is in the context of your question. Who says that you have to become the diplomat to work out the communication between the two parties? 
Sometimes good hashpa can simply be helping this person to work on himself or herself. And very often when we grow, our relationships also change. Sometimes they get better. Sometimes we realize they're not getting better, but at least we have more perspective and we make better choices about them. But things change. When we change, things change. So don't fall in the trap of thinking that you've got to uh, always make peace directly by negotiating a deal. Doesn't have to be the art of the deal, right? Sometimes it could just be good old fashioned hashba, where you're helping an individual be the best that he or she can be. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. Um, was there another? There's one more written question. Maybe we'll just do this and maybe we'll wrap up. And by the way, everyone should know that um, I believe this video is going to be posted at adayad.org slash past dash events. Yeah? Uh, adaiad.org slash past dash events. And if you're watching me say this on the video, it means you already found that URL. Right? Doesn't it mean that? <laughs> okay, one more question. Um, what if a spouse knows she's in an abusive, controlling relationship and her spouse refuses to go for help? What can she do? It's a very serious question. And it's actually, unfortunately, although not surprisingly, a very common question because when there's an abuser and an abused, generally speaking, the abuser doesn't think that, that he or she has the problem, but that the other spouse has the problem. In fact, I don't know if this will shock anybody, but most people who are being abusive truly feel like the victim. They know about some of the abusive behaviors they're doing, which are inappropriate and they're embarrassed of and they wouldn't want everyone on the street to know that they're doing those, those behaviors, but they really, really justified in their abusive behaviors. Um, does that sound strange or can you get it? Like, if, if I went skiing 20 years ago, which I didn't because I actually never went skiing, but maybe someday, and while I was skiing, I threw out my back and I tore a muscle. And um, I'm walking down Kingston Avenue, and my friend comes over to me, and he gives me a pop on the back. He's happy to see me. He gives me a pop on the back, and he hits me in that spot that's, that, that I ripped up 20 years ago skiing. And it hurts really. He just popped me on the back. It really hurts. And I scream. I turn around and I scream, you mashugana, what are you doing? You walk up to people in the street and you hit them? Now, in his mind, his perspective, his side of the story is out of nowhere, out of the blue, out of the clear blue sky, I flipped out on him. My version of the story is this idiot, this wild person is coming along, causing me pain, and now he's crying? He feels bad that I, that I verbally rebuked him? Okay, so if you can imagine somebody has this, this pain, this emotional pain. I'm not rationalizing and I'm not excusing it. I'm not minimizing it. There's nothing acceptable about it because no matter what 
pain we carry around, we're not allowed to be abusive about it. I'm just explaining so you understand. Imagine somebody has this pain. It doesn't have to be sensible. It doesn't have to be rational. It doesn't have to make sense. But they have this pain. And you don't realize that when you do things that are totally normal, you're actually pushing that soft spot, that painful spot. And they're blowing up at you. And, and they're... In their mind, what are you talking about? I'm under threat. I'm just fighting for my life over here. This person came up to me and put me in a threatening position. I'm just trying to restore some, some calm and some order. Most abusive spouses really honestly feel that way. So they'll know that the behavior is inappropriate. They'd be embarrassed if people knew about the, the, the behavior. But if you'd ask them why, they would feel really, really justified. Hey, if that's what I got to do to protect myself, it sounds crazy. It sounds crazy, but OK. So it's, the question was, what if the abuser is refusing to go for help? Yeah, very commonly, the abuser is going to refuse to go. I have a problem. I'm just trying to protect myself over here from this threatening person. In, in, in that case, which is the common case, the answer is that the spouse who's in an abuse, in, in a situation where he or she is being abused, I think we should be really, really, by the way, mehader to be gender neutral when we talk out about abuser and abused because we don't speak about abused husbands, and it's a real thing. And because men are strong, and they associate deep shame with being abused, especially by, by, by a wife, they don't talk about it, but it's a real thing. So I think we should be mahader to be gender neutral when we speak about abuser and abused. So if someone is the abused, he or she needs to go now, immediately, not tomorrow, because you know you've pushed it off before and it, and, it, and it doesn't happen, to get professional help. Part of that means to make sure from an expert that you're safe. You know, you have a safety plan, that you have a way of keeping yourself safe. Um, you know, this is above my pay grade. I don't know how to help you do that. But I know that if you're in a situation where you don't feel safe, physically or emotionally or in any other way. Um, if you feel you're being intimidated or dehumanized, um, then you need today, you need to go to a professional and ask how to get yourself safe. That's, that's the one answer. I mean, any, any elaboration minimizes the gravity of, of the action item, which I'll add as my last tip for the night. Once the person has come to clarity, like let's say you know, the abused spouse says, wow, I get it. No, I totally get it. I got a call for help right now. I'm, I'm, I'm calling the hotline right now. Once you come to clarity, you know, the first rule in show business, you got to leave the stage when they're wanting more. <laughs> No overkill. When a person, they, they, they didn't call to hear you talk. 
you're not so eloquent. I'm saying even to myself, you know, uh, sometimes you, you, you start thinking they called you for your speeches and they didn't. They didn't, trust me, they didn't call you for the speeches. I, they didn't call me for, for, for eloquence. Person has an issue, they want clarity. Was I able to stand at the side? That's how I imagine myself mentally. I'm, I'm standing at the side and coaching and trying to direct them to their clarity. They got the clarity, beautiful. I'm done, I'm obsolete. I, you know, I don't need to be here. I will quietly back away, and you know, you go now. You run with it because it's your life. You're the ones going to have to go implement it, not me. So you know, let me quietly back out of here, and you you go and you know, you be you, and you be awesome, and you know, live 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 the life that the Abish has sent your soul to this world to live. That's I feel like that's the attitude you got to have. So I wish everyone a lot of siyata deshmaya in uh, being humble and. Uh, helping each other in the right ways.